once you find your area of interest, like really hammer on it, you know, make it work in whatever class you're in. If you have a paper that you need to do for whatever, like find a way of incorporating your interest into your class somehow. You're listening to Beyond the Jargon, a conversation with graduate students about their research journeys at the University of Victoria. Welcome to Beyond the Jargon. I'm your host today, Liz MacArthur, and joining me in the studio is Zach Lewis, who is doing a Master's of Sociology. That's right, yep. Welcome. Thank you for joining me today. Yeah, no problem. I'm happy to be here. Um, so uh, I'm interested to know how you got into what you're studying now. As I mentioned before we started, I had, I, you know, I look people up before we go into the interview, find out a little bit about them. And maybe this has something to do with it or maybe it doesn't. But one thing that I thought was interesting was uh, when I, uh, you know, searched your name, something came up about a book that you had read that had influenced your studies. Oh, yeah, actually, uh, that's interesting. Huh. I don't know exactly what that reference is because I haven't seen it myself. Right. But um, if I had to guess, that's probably Rebel Cell. It's a sociology or a book by a couple of sociology profs from U of T, I think, or at least they were at the time of when it was published. It's about um, sort of branding in society and how they change... Uh, uh, they hijack sort of trends of um, rebelliousness and sell it. And so things like how Che Guevara became so popular and how punk rock became this from this fringe thing to this very popular music. It's a, it was a really, really interesting read, and it was before I had even considered going to um, university. But um, sort of when I came to the point where I was ready to go to school, it was... Uh, it made me motivated in sociology. It's what brought me to Sociology 100. Hmm. Why? Just because of the content and the way that people think about these things? Yeah. So the content of the book was, yeah, basically this, it, it was talking about social norms sort of before I knew what social norms were, and, you know, all these things that I can sort of point to what the jargon is now. I, having reread the book, it's like, it makes a lot more sense to me now. But hmm. even then, it really just touched on a lot of things that were really tangible in my life, just uh, thinking about why I buy things. I think I've always thought sociologically. I just didn't know what the academic frame of reference was. And mm. so I guess that's, this was just one of those moments where it just kind of uh, like that and, and, and reading philosophy like John Ralston Saul took me to philosophy in the same sort of way. So it was just, mm. um, yeah, it was just kind of a natural extension, I guess, of what I was already interested in. Hmm. What does that mean when you say you think you always thought sociologically? I'll give you a, an example. I uh, on my way home uh, over reading break a couple weeks ago there, or a week ago maybe because I went the second weekend. But anyway, uh, I stopped in Duncan at this place called the Garage. It is an organic um, food bookstore, grocery store kind of everything mixed into one big place. And I had this moment where I was sitting there and I thought to myself, um, everyone that's in here that buys from this organic store is white. And this is in Duncan, which is, you know, a, it has a massive uh, indigenous community. In fact, you can't own land in Duncan. It's all owned by uh, the indigenous uh, communities of the, of the, of the area. And uh, they sort of lease it to people, basically, is what effectively happens. You can't actually own. And so, anyway, just sort of in the dynamic of this is such a largely indigenously populated area, 
And within this area, there's this place that promotes health and well-being, and yet it is populated only by white people. And so I like to refer to these kinds of things now as like sociological moments. But I think before I ever entered into sociology, I was always really interested in kind of thought of why things were out of place like this. I think now I think even more critically in that direction. So let's talk a little bit about what specifically you're doing for your master's now, because we didn't I didn't actually talk about that at all. Uh, So for my master's, I am interested in critical discourse analysis. Um, Discourse is basically any combination of language, images. It's the kind of things that make up how how, how we think, how we act in society is manipulated by what we see, what we hear, conversations that we have, dialogues that we see on on computer screens. I'm specifically looking at uh, websites of uh, Enbridge, Northern Gateway Pipeline websites, and looking at how their discourse relates to their relationships with Indigenous uh, communities, Hmm. and uh, specifically with reference to Indigenous communities to a large extent are in resistance to pipelines such as this or to this pipeline in particular you know especially and they and they um, portray an image of uh, partnership and uh, uh, consent and um, yeah those kinds of things like they're they're appreciating the duty to consult that they have uh, and this discourse is connected to sort of a larger network of discourse centered from sort of uh, a national level where People like uh, Harper are saying, um, you know, assuming that we have uh, indigenous and communities on board, we're going to move ahead with these pipelines. They've been approved by our environmental assessment um, board and things like that. And so all these discourses sort of shape how people view um, these pipeline projects to be and how they they. Um, view indigenous people's part in them and kind of takes away from their position of resistance because how they're portrayed in sort of media and online. Hmm. Yeah, I think that is uh, something that probably a lot of people, you know, are in some level are aware of, you know, um, that the what is portrayed, yeah, online in the media is not necessarily the reality on the ground. I think an example might be, you know, those islands that were erased in there. I think it was Enbridge's video when they were showing like the tankers will just come right in and there's no right. islands. It's yeah. fine. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that's not like specifically something that I'm that is that is an interesting point, though, that maybe I, mm. I guess I could include. I'm I'm more looking at. um yes specifics of of the image so for example on their website they have these really beautiful uh images of coastline and uh, you know pristine sort of snapshots of panoramic views of mountains and of the ocean and it really the color and the and the and the ambience of the of the website overall kind of gives you this feeling of like appreciation of the beauty of nature which is sort of I mean the opposite of what you would expect when you're looking up a pipeline I guess and so um, I guess I'm trying to uh, tease out sort of how they're co-opting these kinds of because um, because a lot of a lot of what 
uh, critical discourse analysis uh, wants to say is that it's manipulating the way we're thinking about these subjects without us being particularly conscious of them. So when we see these beautiful skylines and ocean shots and, and mountains, it doesn't have a direct effect in the sense that you see it and you have like, oh, a positive, like, oh, I love mountains or something like that. It's more subtle and it's more operates on a little bit more of a subconscious level where it's maybe you're going, maybe you're looking up these websites because you're concerned about pipelines. Like that's what a lot of people are looking into these websites for, right? It's because they have obvious concerns and maybe ought to have concerns about environmental impacts or potential environmental impacts of the pipelines, you know? And so when they're welcomed with that image, it's, um, I think it has like a calming effect or like a, and so that's the kind of thing that I want to tease out of hmm. these websites by sort of capturing them with, with screenshots and applying sort of a critical lens to them. Hmm. So uh, when you're doing your research, you mentioned screenshots. Are you actually talking to the people that um, set these up, talking to maybe marketing people who are, who actually, um, you know, they want to have an image that would be calming for someone? Are you also talking at all to any indigenous groups about their perception um, or people's perception as either resistors or um, people who are on board with the pipelines? Ultimately, that's what I wanted to do for my thesis, and I'm not sure if I should just say explicitly that, but that's not what I'm doing for my thesis anymore. It mm-hmm. was it was maybe too rigorous of a of a of a thing for a master's thesis. Maybe mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it at that to not throw any um, of my <laughs> not make any bad political moves on my part uh, with regards to my professors in the sociology department, but I would have, I would love and will love to have any, uh, involvement with, uh, indigenous communities in particular with, um, how, because a lot of, uh, being critical of what they're putting is subverting th- meaning. So a lot of the language that they use on these websites is indigenous ways of knowing, which is sort of, a and, and a co-opted, term and uh in order for me to derive what they're trying to do with the meaning it's important for me to try and understand what it means to indigenous people and of course there's no homogenous indigenous way of knowing right of of course but uh, you know it would be really helpful to know from the people that are directly affected but yeah it's uh it's arduous i guess to go out to first nations communities in in the north and interview them and gaining access to those communities as uh, myself I'm a white person it's uh, much uh, more difficult I guess and perhaps they have a right to be um, jaded towards academia I'm actually not uh, I actually don't know and mm-hmm. so I, it's not really my place to put judgment on any of those types of things my my experience with communicating with indigenous people has been nothing but them being extremely receptive and interested and open and all of the things that you know uh, as a researcher you would hope that somebody would be you know what initially got you interested in this this um this topic yeah it's a good question uh I don't I guess it's I you know I as much as it's funny I think maybe one of the things that drew, drew me away from philosophy is that I have a really strong uh belief in intuition 
And uh, any person that takes a lot of philosophy will tell you that intuition is not something that they hold very uh, near and dear to any 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 epistemic view, really, frankly. Um, but um, that's Western philosophy and, and it, that I can speak to anyway. So yeah, a lot of it was intuitive. I mean, for me, uh, I, you know, maybe it's kind of ironic that I've come to this place. My, my grandfather is, a, or was a, uh, basically a lumberjack, you know, for lack of a better word, but he owned, uh, logging companies and worked with Macmillan Blodell and worked with Wellwood on the island and mm-hmm. was on the other side of the fence on a lot of these things. Not, not ones that are sort of present to mind. He's 93 in a couple of days here, so. There's no way that he will ever hear this radio interview, but nevertheless, he's a pretty awesome person. But he's also um, very different in terms of his uh, background, his opinion of life and uh, and and society than I am, to say to say the least. As I'm sure a lot of people have similar conflicts with their grandparents, but um, I'm not really sure. Maybe it's a I'm not sure. It's a, it's it's an interesting question how I came to it. Really, it's I, I think about that, uh, and I don't really have a concrete answer. It makes me uh, come back. I'm sure that there's lots of reasons. I think that that's probably the best answer. I Your can grandfather's have. influence? Well, it's well. I just mean that um, he didn't. He had sort of a negative uh, a negative relationship with First Nations people mm-hmm. on the island as a lumberjack, you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you, if, I don't think you can be an extra, an owner of an extractive company on Vancouver Island and not come into conflict with First Nations communities. I don't know if those two things can actually be separated. I think anytime you're cutting down the forest or mining or even setting up a hydro dam, First Nations communities are going to be, uh, they're, they're going to be interested and they're going to be motivated to have a conversation and a dialogue about it. Um, yeah, I think that's just a part of our history. Whether or not those dialogues have gone well is also a part of our history too. And I think, you know, I've, I've, I've like, as I alluded to, I've had a lot of contact with First Nations people in this community. And uh, definitely one thing that I've learned is that, you know, um, the, the present of how, people uh treat uh first nations people and i can speak to myself in this regard because i was really sort of misguided is to treat them i'm i'm gonna say them kind of use my white privilege here and say them and uh to treat them as like damaged or broken people you know and it's and it's uh it's a shame to do that i think because there's a lot of very interesting and powerful things that come from you know, they're not um, damaged and broken. It's just, it's a reality. And it's a reality that's, you know, obviously we had a significant hand in really, it's not in the past. We had a significant hand in creating. And so, I don't know, I, I guess the more that I found out about it, the more I was fascinated because I had such a fixed or different idea of how um, First Nations communities and Indigenous communities worked, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. It's a good question, though. Hmm. So it's sort of, yeah, that ex- extraction, um, resource extraction company relationship with First Nations. And it seems like it's related to your own personal understanding of how that relationship um, is shaped and operates. 
Yeah, well, but my honors thesis was on uh, Gold Corp and uh, the mining company, which is an extractive company, obviously, as well. Um, somewhat like Enbridge, uh, it is based out of Vancouver. And a lot of their interactions have been with indigenous people in Central America. So, and, and it was really negative. They had some human rights violations filed in not here because you can't file them here or rather Guatemalan people can't file them here. They can only file them in places like the U.S. or in Guatemala, in which case um, they don't usually go over very well, unfortunately. Um, and so that's it. Uh, that's a that's a whole nother sort of can of worms but anyway it was really interesting to see how you know those in their relationship with those indigenous people and how they framed their relationship with they have they have a mine in quebec and it's on cree land and they ha they've sort of framed this relationship with this cree group uh cree community rather um that's very positive and very much one of like mutual um trust and partnership and all of these sort of very positive things and, and but it's on the same it's in the same place on their websites on the it's in the same area of their website as you know information about their dealings with indigenous people around the marlin mine which is um quite famous for them contaminating their water and giving people um basically poisoning people mm -hmm. that live there through their water and through their soil and things like that. So, um, yeah, it was a really interesting study for me because I was trying to um, tease out this uh, similarities between their dealings with these two indigenous groups. And uh, in that particular instance, it seemed like their dealings with indigenous people here were very positive. Of course, that's what you find on their website. What else would you find but positive stories? But... Um, anyway, I've never heard anything negative about their relationship with that particular group. So perhaps that's something that they have succeeded at and are doing very well. But, uh, yeah, their history in Guatemala is definitely very, uh, murky. Mm -hmm. I think this is something that Canadians in general are not as aware of. Um, the way that Canadian mining companies work in places like Latin America and Africa in some cases. And there are direct comparisons that can be drawn to treatment of indigenous people in other countries and First Nations here. Um, but I know that there is a lawsuit currently going through um, the Supreme Court of Canada in Toronto for a group of people from Guatemala. Okay. And they're, they've successfully brought their case to the Supreme Court of Canada, yeah. which is interesting to see, like, development on that front. Mm -hmm. um, there have been several court. There has been several courts that have heard cases. Yeah. It's just there's no bill in place. There's no statute mm -hmm. in place to say that these things are illegal. There's no, there's no precedent set that a judge has made uh, that allows for them to pass judgment on mm -hmm. these cases because there's no law saying people from another country can bring their human rights um, complaints if the company is based, you know, in Canada and they have a complaint against them, they have to legally, according to Canadian law, file in their own country, mm -hmm. basically is essentially how the law works here right now. But, um, yeah, there are, they are hearing the cases. There's just no, from my understanding, there's no statute in place for them to actually, you know, the judges are just 
handcuffed. So I'm, I'm, I'm guessing they keep throwing these cases at them in the hopes that they'll Mm-hmm. There'll um, be precedent set. There'll, there'll be a precedent set, yeah. yeah. How did you come to that initially, that topic of uh, like Canadian mining operations? And- oh, that's another good question. I spent a lot of time in, in southern Mexico in a community called, uh, well, a state, the state of Chiapas. Mm-hmm. But, uh, there's a town called San Cristobal de Casas that's right near uh, Tuxla, which is the capital. And it's predominantly Mayan people that live in this uh, town. And it's a an amazing, amazing little area of several uh, indigenous communities. I think, um, I think we kind of use the word Mayan like we use the word First Nations, which is that there's many type, many communities that fall under the umbrella of both. And so it's a bit of a hmm. uh, a misnomer there. But anyway, nevertheless, um, I spent a lot of time down there. My mom lived down there for seven years. And I went down there a few times, and um, Guatemala is very close to there. It's it's a lot of the same sort of um, community, and I actually just heard about this mine firsthand, and uh, and 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 was keenly aware of Zapatista movement um, because I had seen some of the um, their acts of civil disobedience throughout my time spent down there since uh, I guess 2006 or 7 and so yeah I guess I just again kind of came came about it from a place of uh, experience and, and sort of intuition it just kind of was something that I was already interested in and then I don't know I was doing some kind of social movements class and I was like oh I'll do something oh I, there is one thing that I should say uh, Imperial Oil Incorporated. Alain Deneau, is he's from Quebec. He's a he's a scholar. And he came to UVic and he had a talk about uh, the extractive industry in general in Canada, and it was very much to do with this subject, and it very much like fueled a bit of a fire uh, under me. And I should fully give him credit as well as J.P. Sapinski for putting on that class. It was like corporations in a uh, globalizing world or something like that sociology 355 two or three years ago I'm like mm. dating my university life but anyway so yeah that's that's sort of I mean that I guess that's kind of how university life works if you, you know you find those things that you're interested in and you you cling to them because when you're you know neck deep in a paper that's taking you four months to do and you're at page number 30 and you're tearing your hair out and you're like living and breathing this thing, you better be really kind of passionate and interested in it because otherwise it's going to, it's going to, I don't know, it's going to, I can't imagine what it would be like, probably a lot less fulfilling or I don't know, because it's already, you know, it already is taxing Mm -hmm. for me as somebody who is passionate about it. So I can only imagine if I wasn't. So when did you start your master's? In September right. of 2015. Okay, so how much uh, how much more time are you spending on it? Are you researching right now? And when do you move into writing? How's that going to work for you? I am doing courses for the first... You do courses for the first year in sociology master's. is a two-year program. So the first year I'll be doing courses. So last year I was doing um, coursework. This year I'll be doing coursework. Uh, I usually direct most of my theory towards my sort of topic of interest that's just something 
somewhat of a, uh, I guess, a tip if an undergraduate listens to something like this would be once you find your area of interest, like really hammer on it, uh, you know, make it work in whatever class you're in, make it, if you have a paper that you need to do for whatever, like find a way of incorporating your interest into your class somehow. That's how you get to have a really developed and nuanced and well-rounded sort of idea of your subject matter of the theories that sort of apply to what you want to do is by doing these kinds of papers and projects and assignments again and again and again in the same pot as much as that might seem really boring to do the same thing over and over again it's that's how you build i think and have real understand mm -hmm. genuine understanding but uh at the end of this year, I'm going to take at least a month off. <laughs> I went straight. I went straight into my master's from my undergraduate. I don't suggest doing this, uh, particularly if you have the opportunity in August to start in September and you weren't planning on going to grad school. I don't don't rush into it. It's it's a lot of hard work. It's totally worth it, but it's a lot of hard work. And I'm not trying to scare anyone away, but just. Take take your break if you need if you need your break. Take your break. Think before Don't be you in act. A rush. Think <laughs> think before. Yeah, it's not something to be taken lightly. It's a lot of work, and it's mm. you know it's very much a full time job at this point for me. I'm I'm busy most every day. I don't think I took it that way in my first semester, and I suffered for it greatly. And mm. this semester, it's very much a full time job. And uh, I mean, I, again, you know, I love it, but it's. Uh, you got to realize your limitations and where you're at sort of with your body and mind too, you know, like you come, you come first, even though, even if you love what you're doing. Then after this, you've got another year, you're going to be writing, researching. How does that work? Yeah. Uh, so my advisor is uh, Bill Carroll. He's doing a six year uh, research project on the extractive industry. Surprise, surprise. It's, it's, uh, it's basically about Canadian extractive industry wholesale so it's like a massive project it's the largest uh, social sciences grant in Canadian history I'm pretty sure wow it's a huge grant and my motivation for going to grad school <laughs> was to was to sort of be a part of this project in some way shape or form so um that hasn't happened yet but you know we're we're sort of I'm I'm sort of fingers crossed and uh and we've had a lot of discussions about how, how I'm going to apply. It, it's a huge, huge, huge. It's multi universities. It's it's a massive, massive project. And I shouldn't mm -hmm. I shouldn't actually speak to what it is in particular because, in all honesty, it's it's broader and and um, more thorough than I actually um, understand at this point. Being sort of just being introduced to it as mm -hmm. I am, but uh, my my research is going to be. As I was mentioning before, a critical discourse analysis on Ambridge's website. What I want to do is sort of just look at how, um, again, positions of resistance uh, by Indigenous communities are kind of uprooted by um, discourse. There's actually a study that was just published recently. I don't have the author's name off the top of my head because it literally just dropped on my desk this morning. That was about how media discourse, <coughs> excuse me, upsets these positions of authority and upsets uh, social movements against pipeline movements. So I, I'm going to have to definitely 
dive into that when I get back to my desk, so to speak. But anyway, that's sort of the direction that I'm going. Like, how does this, how does this, uh, how does their own discourse that they create on their websites, because there's more than one, there's one that's called gatewayfacts.ca uh, or something like that. And it's really interesting because there's, doesn't actually appear to be Gold Corp. Or, I mean, sorry, Enbridge, rather. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm getting my two studies mixed <laughs> up. <laughs> um, uh, it doesn't actually appear to be Enbridge, kind of. Mm-hmm. And so, which is interesting. Uh, they're, they're kind of completely removing the image of, a, of, a, of, a, of an oil and gas company Just altogether in order to, I don't know, promote a more positive image, I guess. Hmm. One of pristine natural beauty. Uh, we're pretty much out of time. I want to wish you luck with your studies and thank you for coming on the show today. Thanks. It's my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Jargon. If you're interested in being interviewed, please email cfuvcad at uvic.ca. To listen again, you can find a link to the podcast at cfuv.ca.